All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, tuplets? What the fuck, Adelics? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. Still making my way through my birthday cake. We bought a large cake. It's the most amazing vegan cake I've ever eaten in my life. And I am not my mother's son in certain ways. I will not throw away food unless it's just tapped. I will not throw away food. I don't like not eating food, all of it, at a restaurant. I don't even, I, I get a little sad thinking about what happens to leftover buffet food. I have a food thing. I think we've established that. But goddamn, this cake has lasted. I froze it and I just defrost it. And then I'll just eat it and, and I'll just almost cry with chocolate joy. Cry with chocolate joy. Also, this I guess what I'm doing is this will be me charting my pre-diabetes. But uh, Dr. Bronner's, and they don't pay for ads. They've always been supportive of this show. And years ago, feels like years, they sent me a couple boxes of the, of the soap, the big bottles. And I've been using that for a couple of years. Nothing but Bronner's. But anyway, they were making chocolate for a while. Then I went vegan. And then out of nowhere, gift pack, vegan chocolate bars from Bronner's. And they're so rich and fucking good. And between that and the cake and the box of dates I bought, I'm fucking jammed with sugar. Jammed up. But uh, happy birthday to me ongoing. So Lou Adler's on the show today. This guy is one of the one of the fucking Hollywood rock guys. He's a record producer, a film producer, co-owner of the Roxy Theater in Hollywood. He produced albums with the Mamas and Papas, Jan and Dean, Carol King, including Tapestry. Oh my God, his grandkids are still eating cake on that one. He produced several movies, including the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and he directed Cheech and Chong's Up in Smoke. Come on, man. Dave's not here. Come on, dude. The Roxy just celebrated its 50th anniversary, so we had him in. And he doesn't, uh, he doesn't do this stuff. He's written no books, and he knows a lot of stuff. But he's, you know, he's a guy that keeps to himself, lives his life, enjoys it. But he's been there through the whole arc of that, that era of music, late 60s, mid-60s, early 70s. He was here, man. He was in it. Pals with Jack and Warren and that crew. But it uh, goes way back in the music business. It's, it is a great, great episode. The pre-sale for my 2024 tour is going on right now. All the links are at WTFPod.com slash tour. And you can use the pre-sale code all in. That's one word, A-L-L-I-N. I'll be performing in San Diego, San Francisco, Portland, Maine, Boston, Providence, Rhode Island, Terrytown, New York, Atlanta, Madison, Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Chicago, Minneapolis, Montclair, New Jersey, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Detroit, Charleston, South Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina, Durham, North Carolina. Oh, I got to go see the Tigers. The Tigers at the Tiger Rescue, Vancouver and Seattle. The presale continues today until 10 p.m. local time for each venue. Again, the password is all in one word. The general on-sale date is tomorrow, Friday, November 3rd at 10 a.m. local time. All the venues and links are at WTFPod.com slash tour. This Saturday, I'll be in Boston doing the Comics Come Home. 
It's going to be me and Robert Kelly and Burr and Pete Davidson and Tammy Pescatelli and Lenny Clark, Alex Edelman, Rachel Feinstein, and more. And more. Boston. But I've talked about this before, man. Going back to Boston, that area, that to be in the same airness of New England is both, uh, uh, it's heavy, man. It's a, especially in fall, you know, you get that crisp air and the leaves changing and it's beautiful. It's poetic. But for me, it's also a, a bit, uh, it's a bit of returning to the scene where the trauma took place, where I put myself through it, both college and comedy. I mean, I left home and I went first to Milton, Massachusetts for my freshman year out there at Curry College and then to Boston. And so all those changes were there. What song is that? Helpless. All my changes were there. That's for sure. I mean, I think, I think Neil's talking about Winnipeg and he was probably younger, but when you make the shift to, uh, to college, if you're fortunate enough or you can like you know you're kind of on your own but not really and you're just if you're me you know my sense of self is a little amorphous anyways and it's just you kind of put the pieces together you try to do all the things that you always wanted to do like for me you know I did some acting I did some writing I did some poetrying wrote for the newspaper studied film studied uh, English studied art you know I did all the stuff wrote some stuff uh, you know, to try to find myself. But that's like, that's not a great time. I don't know what kind of people have a great time figuring themselves out. I mean, I don't regret it, but Jesus Christ, that was hard and sad and weird and embarrassing. And then like I come out here to LA and I do the LA thing, get all fucked up on drugs, go back to Boston, start my comedy career there, hard and sad and embarrassing not barely a good time to be had any time during that time, other than hanging out with some uh, some comics, living with Cross, and and hanging out with the guys who and women and men of my generation there, drinking, doing blow. Damn. But really, I think at the heart of the trauma of going back to the New England area is. You know, I, for some reason, was able to work these one-nighters and just driving out into the middle of nowhere to do to go up cold for an audience of people, New England people, the full spectrum of New England people, and just hammering it out at a goddamn bowling alley. I feel it coming on when I go out there working with Lenny Clack. Lenny Clack was scary, man. And all those, that, that whole world of, of Boston comics, as great as they all are and were, intimidating and scary. Didn't want to get on the wrong side of any of them. I miss Bob Seibel. There's just a shout out. Rest in peace, Bob Seibel. That guy was a character. I wish I had a little more time with Bob Seibel. <laughs> oh, my God. Driving down to Franks and Franklin, Pancho Villas and Lemonster. Banditos in Fall River, the Taunton Regency, Captain Nicks in a Gunkwit, Johnny Yee's down in Yarmouth. Oh my God. Hanging around the hotel room with Joe Yanetti and Don Gavin playing that dollar poker game. 
Jesus. I know it sounds amazing and fun. It was a lot of anxiety and a lot of sweating. But I made it through and I'm going back this Saturday. And eventually, like, same with the comedy store. You know, the damage that was done to me at that place when I was younger, eventually it faded after I went there more. And maybe this will be, maybe it'll be fun. Maybe it'll just be fun. I'm going to play with the band. We're going to do the asshole song. I think me and Burr are going to be in the band. They got me some gear. I got to go to a rehearsal on Saturday. I am a little worried about my 10 or 15 minutes. I'm intimidated by those audiences. It doesn't go away. Driving out, driving to Worcester to do stitches at Margaritaville. Just no, you know, just coming up against a full room of those fuckers, Sully's and uh, Cindy's and Sal's, Terry's. What I'm just naming names. I just phrase I like Burr, just naming names, reeling them off. Who gives a fuck? Yeah, see, it's happening. I've got to keep it out. I've got to hold on to me as I enter this world. All right, so and next week. I go to Albuquerque. My old man's there, slowly, uh, slowly ejecting. And uh, my whole life is there. I'm going to play the chemo theater. The chemo theater. It's actually something I always wanted to do. It's not a lot of gigs in Albuquerque. It's not a big market. But I sold out the chemo, and it's a big deal. It's always a big deal to go home and to feel the weight of that. To feel the weight of the judgment of some of the people that knew me when I was five. Ah, I would have been older when I was 10, you know? So I got the weight of the entire audience of New England who saw me forge part of me. And I got to go feel the weight of Albuquerque, New Mexico, which forged the rest of me. And then I got to go to Thanksgiving at my mother's. Uh, and sort of uh, be in the absence of my uh, amazing Aunt Barbara. So it's a it's a heavy month, man. It is a heavy month. So look, this is a great conversation. I talked to Lou Adler for quite a while. His club, The Roxy, is having its 50th anniversary. You can go to theroxy.com for all the shows and events they're holding this year. And this is me talking with Lou Adler. It seems like you're doing all right. <laughs> you're still alive. I'm 60 today. You remember 60? I was thinking about that today because <laughs> I was reading about you. Yeah. And I saw it was your birthday. 60 was a real good birthday for me. Oh, yeah? Yeah. When I was 55, yeah. I met my wife, this, who this, I'm, the this one, one I'm now married yeah. to. And um, I started having a bunch of kids. You know, so, <laughs> yeah, it was good. Was that on purpose? After a while, well, she wanted, when I met her, yeah, she said, you know, I have to tell you that one of my things that I always thought about was to have seven kids by seven different men. Men. Wow, what is she, a cat? 
<laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but I gave her seven. <laughs> you know? Wow. So now you got them too. You didn't just give them to her. Uh, but you got them. I had three before I met her. Yeah. And one of them still runs the club, right? Cisco. Yeah. He, yeah, he, Nikolai, he's got so much to do with yeah. uh, uh, Golden Voice That's a, festivals. Okay. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, he owns a bunch of vegan restaurants. Oh, yeah, here? Monty's. Oh, yeah? He owns that chain. Um, so they're just doing the business. But who's running the club now? The Roxy? Ah, uh, Golden Voice. Oh, so it's not a, a family affair anymore, really? Yeah, we overlook it. Yeah. And uh, Nikolai is able to because he's Golden Voice and family. Right, right. So, yeah. It's, yeah. It's good. And Paul Toledo has become a very good friend. Yeah. So he's uh, Who's he? He's uh, started Golden Voice. That's a, a production company. Or what? That, was, that does Coachella. Right. And probably two hundred more festivals. Is that? But is it considered a, a what is it? Is it considered a management company or a production company or just a, a, well, a music owned, promotion? Or? It's owned by AEG now. Oh, really? They own everything. Yeah. Right. You can yeah, only it, fight them for so long, I guess. If they don't, Live Nation does. Yeah, yeah. Live Nation is huge. You knew Bill Graham, right? Back in the day. Yeah, very much. Yeah. Yeah. Good guy. Good, strong, um, tough. Yeah. Really tough guy, but yeah. a good guy. So, like, I was trying to figure out, because I haven't talked to too many people that have the arc uh, that, that you do in, in music, and in this town primarily, except for Herb Albert. I interviewed Herb Albert. Years oh, you ago. did? I did. I did. I didn't ask him about it. I spoke to him yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, we had a good talk. And you guys... Came up together, right? Yeah, we did. We started together. But where'd you start? Right in. Songs? Yeah. Wait, right. what What town? What city? Here. Oh, LA, really? LA, not Glendale, LA. <laughs> but you grew up here or you grew up elsewhere? I grew up in Boyle Heights, East LA. In East LA? Yeah. So you, he's a LA guy too. He went to Fairfax. Yeah. So you knew each other in high school? No. Well, I knew his, he was in the army. Yeah. I met his girlfriend, which I didn't know was his girlfriend. <laughs> Until you tried? And <laughs> no, no, it worked right. okay. Yeah. He got out of the army, eventually married her. Um, and she introduced me to her girlfriend, and that's how Herbie and I became good friends. Yeah, yeah. And And did you write together? Yeah, we wrote songs together. And that's how it started. What, what, what was the first hit? Well, we had a couple small hits. Yeah. Uh, by weird groups. Circle Rock by the Salmas Brothers. Yeah. Uh, you Who by a, a country artist. Yeah. Eventually, we had uh, Sam Cooke and, you know, Wonderful World. You wrote that? Yeah. That's a big song. Yeah, big. That song probably still makes money. Still does. <laughs> It's crazy. Takes care of the younger kid. Uh, that's crazy. <laughs> the youngest one. Yeah. The one I just met. Yeah. yeah. No, no, there's one below him. Oh, my God. Yeah. You got a real brood going. Yeah. So that's, uh, so when you were coming up, I mean, it's it's interesting to me that how, how did the, because I've talked to guys who uh, who were in New York mm -hmm. and doing that 
that song writing and that song. Yeah, opening. I was involved in that for a while. Like the Brill Building and that kind of stuff? The 1650 Building, which everybody calls the Brill Building. But it's not the Brill Building? No, it's 1650 Broadway. Okay. So, but out here... I mean, what 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 compelled you to get into the music racket? Because I, you know, it's a certain type of person. Like when you were a kid, was it you just? No, no. I I wanted to be a journalist. You actually, did, yeah. And in uh, junior high school and high school, I wrote the school songs. Yeah. But I never thought of anything, maybe journalism. Yeah. As a career. Right. You know, I was just going from whatever one thing to the next or whatever my dad thought. He'd get a trade, you know. What was your dad's trade? He was a mechanic and a truck driver. Oh, yeah, here in L.A. Yeah. And your mom? Housewife. Yeah. Yeah, never worked, stopped working when she was 16 in Chicago. Oh, so they they come up in Chicago. Yeah. Chicago Jews. Chicago Jews. Yeah. For sure. Uh, and then you got siblings? I have one sister. Yeah? Seven years younger. Still around? Yep. Good genes. Yeah. Good for you. She is. <laughs> our, our our parents aren't, but mm-hmm. my sister and I are. So you start writing songs because, like, when you got into music— like the whole business built around you, really around around that generation of people. The rock business and the pop song business shifted, right? When you were starting out, shifted as far as what? As as far as like the the I would imagine, uh, it just seemed like there were a lot of people once rock and roll took hold, you know, trying to score these songs, trying to you know, make hits, trying to write hits, trying to deliver them to artists. And maybe it was always like that. I don't know. Well, it was more individual. You know, there was. Uh, less corporate, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Uh, so, and it was quicker. Yeah. Um, in L.A., you write a song, uh, you could have it on the air in 24, 36 hours. You know? <laughs> really? So, yeah. What, you just press a single? You go and press a single. You find a band, you press a signal, you get it to the, 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 the disc you, jockey. You go to KFWB, the radio station, yeah. the disc jockey. In our case, we made the disc jockey our partner, B. Mitchell Reed. Yeah. Became our partner. He was a uh, three o'clock DJ. Oh, wow. A dr- kind of a drive time guy. Yeah, drive yep. time. Uh, formerly, from, he was from New York, a jazz DJ. Uh-huh. Who uh, bought into rock and roll, and that and so that so that wasn't quite payola. That was uh, just a partnership, yeah, and it wasn't based on payola. Well, yeah, you know, not, yeah, not consciously. <laughs> yeah, right. But it was just a smart move to bring the yeah, guy in, definitely. And he was a friend. Yeah, so he became a friend. And he, you got the, how long that part? So you and Herb and him. Yeah, it was called. Let's see. You know, uh, uh, Herbie Lou Productions. Yeah, yeah. Herb B for B Mitchell. Reed. Yeah, Lou. Yeah. Take off on Desi Lou. Oh, okay. And and how long did uh, how many hits did that company have? Uh none. No. <laughs> <laughs> not, not really. Herbie and I started to get into production. Uh, started w- working with Sam Cooke at that point. It was at the peak of his career? Uh, no. Just he, before? He had, it was 58, 59. Yeah. He had you send me um, and maybe a couple of other hits. Right. Yeah. But he, he was done with the gospel. 
He was done with gospel, yeah. yeah. And so, so you got him sort of at prime time. Everything I've ever done is, seems to be prime time. So, <laughs> is that, would you that's is would you call that luck? I've had a lot of luck. Yeah, I, I don't know what else to call it because I don't seek it out in that way. Yeah. Uh, so it's a lot of it is luck. I mean, it has a lot to do with instincts. Sure. Um, I've tried a lot of. Uh, new things because uh, I've never been very conscious of rules and regulations. Were you managing with the, with the Herb? Herbie and I, our first act that we managed was Jan and Dean. So they had some hits. So that was after? Oh, they had a lot of hits. So that was after the songwriting? All right, like sort of during? Like when does it all that, happen at once? That was managing, producing more than songwriting. So it was a little later than the songwriting 59, period. Later than Herbie Lou. Uh, later than Herbie. Well, during, but later. Okay. Yeah. So how does it, so when you decide to be a manager, I mean, how does that, that sort of work? It just seems like, it feels like these things were just impulsive back in the day. You just grab a band and you sign the papers and you're the guy? Yeah, sometimes you don't sign the papers. Sure. You're the guy. You start taking on things that you can do. Yeah. Uh, that nobody else is doing for them. Right. And they're not doing or they don't want to do. And you you fill those slots and pretty soon you're a manager. But that is that how you built relationships with the labels and stuff? By by taking on someone like Jan and we, Dean? We started, yeah, that it, it was actually. But there were small labels because you couldn't get in to uh, Capital, RCA, yeah. and Columbia yeah. were the three big ones at mm -hmm. that time. So it was Vine Street. It was uh, Storefronts. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. And the Janadine Records were on a label called Dory, D-O-R-E. And whose label was that? Uh, Lou Bedell was his name. Yeah. Uh, he, was, uh, he had another label, Era. Yeah. Uh, small labels. They were, you know, he was a comedian. So, so this was a time where, like, you know, a guy, you, 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 could, you could pull it together, you could, you could press some records, and there was a chance outside of the corporate structure altogether, outside of major labels, you could make a, you could make a pretty good hit for yourself and, and do all right. Oh, you, you could start. What we did as soon as we had a hit of any kind, yeah. maybe even before we started labels. Yeah. You know? Yeah, what labels did you start, did you uh, have? Before my big labels, which were Dunhill and Ode, uh, I had, we had little labels named after our girlfriends at yeah. that time. And so was the idea with the little label just to, you, you would just, you know, what would you do, paperwork and just know, like knock out a few records on it and then you yeah, move on? You could press it. Yeah. Uh, and you could uh, promote it. Hmm. And there were local promotion men. Um, Jerry Moss was a very independent local promotion man we used. Yeah, and he was he was around for years, right? He was around. He started in '59. Uh, and didn't he go on to be a label head? Uh, he started A and M with it, with, uh, with uh, Herb, Herb. Yeah. right? Jerry Moss, right, right, yeah. right, right. But if you got something on the radio in the twenty-four hour period. I mean, and it takes off. You got a lot of records to press, right? 
Well, that's an interesting thing because, like, for example, Sam Cooke. Right. They put out You Send Me. Yeah. And it becomes, it goes major right away. Yeah. Stations are picking it up. And there, there were 32 independent distributors across the country at that time. One in New York, one in Philadelphia, one in New Jersey, all okay. the way across. So, and they would make deals. Uh, if if I buy, now I'm a distributor, which I wasn't. Yeah. Uh, if I buy 300 records, will you give me 10 or 15 free so they could sell those and make all the money on them? Right. We're naive. Yeah, sure, we'll do okay. that. Uh, Sam Cooke comes out. You send me, start selling crazily. The guy in Philadelphia calls Keen Records, which yeah. is putting the record out. Will you give me a hundred records for every three hundred I sell? Yeah, okay. Send me thirty thousand. Know? <laughs> that, so that so not great deals, but you did all right. Well, for me and Herbie, we're making money we never made before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was enough to get you guys, you know, started. That was that. Was that really what you built Dunhill Records on? No, Dunhill was uh, financed by uh, another partner that I had at the time. Oh, yeah. So you just you made the money on the Sam Cooke uh, single, and then you just kept doing the same thing for just a while. Just kept on going, knocking them out. Yeah. That was the last one with Sam, though. The Wonderful World was very late with Sam. We had a couple of. Small records on different albums. Yeah. Nothing really big till Wonderful World. So managing Jan and Dean, were you with them their whole career through through the uh, the tragedy, like Jan and Dean? Yeah, I was. I was with them. I saw Dean last night. You did? Yeah. How's he doing? Yeah, Dean is one of the sweetest people ever and ever was and still is. Yeah. So when... How does it sort of evolve? What are the next steps that get you to the point where, I mean, because it seems like, you know, I, I guess the times were changed. So we're, we're talking with, with, with Sam Cooke's the early 60s, right? Jan and Dean's the early 60s? Yeah. Um, Jan and Dean were 59. So Sam was before that, 57, 58. So what are you doing between like, you know, 59 <clears throat> and when, you know, the 60s explode? Well, what happened is that Herb and I decided to go separate ways. Herbie always wanted to be an artist. Yeah. So we split whatever we had. I took Jan and Dean and he took the tape machine. It was our kind of, that, that, were our, that was our assets at yeah. the time. Yeah. And I went to work in New York in 1961 for a publishing company, a guy named Donnie Kirshner. Uh, and Al Nevins had a company called Alden Music. Yeah. And... Uh, 36 top 10 records in three years. That's how big that company was. Wow. And that Is was that a, Don Kirshner from Don Kirshner? Yep. Rock uh, concert? That's Don Kirshner. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's where I met Carol King, Barry Mann. So that was the New York time. That was New, the, the Broadway time. New York. Yeah. yeah. And that's okay. So you met Carol King as a songwriter? Songwriter. Her and her husband, Jerry Goffin. Goffin, Yeah. yeah. Okay, so that's where you, you kind of get tapped into that whole scene. That's a whole different world than I mean, New York, right? Publishing, yeah. Not only New York, but publishing. Yeah. Which I hadn't dealt with much. 
not on that level. Well, that's also like, you know, that's where the big money is, right? In a lot of ways, is holding on to well, the publishing? It's the uh, continuation of money yeah. also. The know. continuation, oh, after the record sales. Yeah. I see. <laughs> So when do the, so how does the relationship with Carol King evolve? Because that seemed to be, you know, that seemed to be. Uh, it even I, I was what my job was. Yeah, was to take songs that they wrote mm -hmm. and try to get them recorded by artists by relationships with the A and R men and the producers. And so from New York, I had this small period, maybe three, four months when I lived in in New York. And then I came out to L.A. and opened up a branch of uh, Alden Music. So, so then you were primarily in publishing and you were taking songwriters' songs to artists or trying to deal with A&R guys to, get to, to deliver them to artists. Right. And Carol was sending me what I noticed at the time is that when I would give a demo— of Carol King to a producer yeah. or an aura. Couldn't get it back. Oh, yeah? They loved the demo so much. Oh, wow. So they added it to their collection of music that they listened to. Huh. Eventually, that comes when I start recording Carol to keep it simple and keep it like demos. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah, well, you made that, that masterpiece record. But be before Tapestry, you were dealing with... Uh, some of that, the pop psychedelic guy, like the Mamas and the Papas. I guess, I don't know if it's psychedelic, but it was at the beginning of that, right? The process was psychedelic. <laughs> <laughs> the records weren't psychedelic. Yeah, yeah. But you were sort of at the, uh, at the you were on top of the wave of, of 60s pop with, yes. those, with them, right? Yes, for sure. Not, and that wave yeah. went from New York to L.A. Okay. It, it, that's when L.A. started to get big. Uh, folk rock. Right. Folk, folk groups rock. start moving into L.A. Yeah. So, you, like, the, like in New York, where, where were – so the Stone Ponies, right? Linda Ronson. Right. Was that, were they in New York or were they here? They were here. Yeah. I mean, that's one of those pure folk – Bands, yeah, all of those groups. guys, but you know, Neil Young, Eagles, uh, yeah, um, parts of Fleetwood Mac. Everybody was moving out of folk. Uh, Stephen Stills, yeah, yeah. You know, okay, um, so but but it seemed was the Mamas and the Papas the first to really break out of folk? You think into into pop? I think it was the biggest. Yeah, and. It had a lot of impact because uh, of the two girls being up front yeah. for the first time uh, in a rock and roll group. And that was on your label, the first Mamas and Papas. Dunhill. That was the first Mamas and Papas record. That's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you were producing. Yes. So you're in the middle of the insanity. Right in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> right in the middle. And, and, and you lived to tell the story. Well, that's quite a story. Well, it's interesting because I was like looking, you know, uh, kind of reading up on you, and and the fact that you you haven't written a memoir. I have not because uh, you're a guy that uh, keeps things either keeps them to himself or knows a lot of secrets. Well, I'm I'm both of those guys actually, yeah. but you know, I do. I've only done two podcasts. Oh yeah, you know, I just uh, it's my story, and I'll keep it. Yeah. It's that type of thing. You know, I mean, I don't want, I mean, the story gets so broad yeah. 
that if you start to tell it or write it, yeah, you have to stop some point. You can't delve that deep into it without I, I, without I, possibly hurting other people. I, or I, I don't. Yeah, I don't feel comfortable doing that. Yeah, um, I have seven kids, seven yeah. boys, and uh, they ask me questions. Yeah. I sort of live the book. Right. Through them. Yeah. yeah. So. yeah they, do they ask you questions about you mostly or about people you knew? It's it's a pretty good combination, and it depends on which boy. Because of the age? Uh, age and what they're into. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're certainly a, a good resource. I am an excellent resource <laughs> for so many years. You know, yeah. So. so after, like, in the 60s, you, you know— I guess that really kind of established you here and the label and the bands you're working with as as one of the main music movers in, in L.A., right? I think so, yeah. 1964, mm-hmm. uh, I started doing those live at the Whiskey Albums with Johnny Rivers. Mm-hmm. And from that point on, it snowballed. I really... It was constant. So the whiskey is still around, and that's that predates— Started in 1964. It predates the Roxy by a decade almost, right? Yes. And so at that point, the Roxy's just a strip club, and the Troubadour's around, right? Troubadour, yeah, folk. Folk, all folk. And uh, Rainbow's not happening yet. 71. Okay, so what is the feeling, you know, because you must have seen in the mid-60s the Sunset Strip take the form that it— it took it. It changed, right? This, what was on the strip? Was it just a couple of those clubs? And Ciro's was probably still there, right? Ciro's was there. I mean, the the basic attendee to uh, the strip uh, and the areas surrounding the strip uh, was Frank Sinatra Group. You know, I mean, people of that age, and, right? Entertainment that they were looking for. So that okay. So that so that well, this that's the big moment, right? So in the mid '60s to the late '60s, the the entire music industry shifts, the film industry shifts, entertainment shifts. Film was a little later, seventy, I mean, yeah, one, two, yeah, the trip and right those, those films, five that, easy pieces that woke up and said, ah, rock and roll, you know. yeah, yeah, um, but music. Music, like, you know, after the folk rock thing, I mean, you saw, you know, pretty, I mean, you knew Janice, no? Well, I did Monterey Pops. Yeah. So I, and what uh, was that? That was 70... 67. Wow. Yeah. Was that your idea? My The idea was sort of John Phillips. Yeah. Uh, Mamas and Papas. Okay. Uh, I jumped right in. Yeah. Uh, the two of us uh, put together this uh, board of directors that yeah. never met. <laughs> But <laughs> a few names on a piece of paper. Yeah, some, some of them didn't even know they were in the board of directors <laughs> or on the board of yeah. directors, which sort of validated what we were trying to do. And how many were there? Uh, I think there were 15. But the first one was 69. Which festival? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. There was only one. That was There was only the one? Until two years ago. Uh, the Or whatever it yeah. was, the 50th anniversary, there was one. So that was one big festival. One big. We went back to wow to think about the second one. Yeah. And uh, they had caught on to what we were doing. Yeah. 
They raised all the prices. They asked for more things. Yeah. It just got to be you know, literally a pain in the ass. So we just... Wow. Know. But the first one, I mean, because I, I've seen like... I've seen some of the film. There's somewhere it, it, someone filmed it. Penny Baker. It was Penny Baker because I watched it on I don't know, maybe the Criterion Channel. I don't know where I found it, it. It's on Criterion, and it's like you know, there's some the the scope of it was amazing, and there were like everybody was there right of that time. Every every genre, every big act or up and coming act in every genre. It was crazy. Like on the Saturday afternoon, I got the list right here. Canty, Big Brother and the Holding Company, Country Joe and the Fish, Al Cooper, the Butterfield Blues Band, the Electric Flag, Quicksilver Messenger Service, Steve Miller Band. I just interviewed him. He's, a, he's an interesting guy. Steve, yeah. Yeah, because like, you know, it, like he could walk down the street and no one would know him, but no. he had some of the biggest hits of the 70s, that he's guy. A, a musician. He really is, right? And yeah. then in the night, Moby Grape, uh, Hugh Masekela. The Birds, Laura Nero, Jefferson Airplane, Booker T and the MGs, the Marquis, Otis Redding, Ravi Shankar was there, Simon and Garfunkel, Eric Burden, Johnny Rivers, The Association. I can't. Buffalo Springfield, The Who, The Grateful Dead, Hendrix. That must have been. Did, were you awake the whole time for three days? I was on a high. Yeah. <laughs> Which kind? Both. <laughs> was it? Do you have memories of it? Was it crazy? Or I have every memory. Uh, You're lucky. I'm so lucky. I mean, somebody asked me the other day, of all the big uh, music events, yeah, are there? Which ones would you have liked to be have been at? And I said, I was at. You know, yeah, all the big ones. I would. I got to be there, either a part of it or see it, uh, hear it. But it seems like Monterey. You know, was not as crazy as Woodstock. Uh, Good. Monterey was about the music. Yeah. Woodstock was about the weather. Yeah. So it's a big de- weather and the size of the crowd. Yeah, it was a little. Un- Neither of those things entered into Monterey. Yeah. All about the music. And in your recollection, were there like what were the moments at Monterey where you were like, "Holy shit! This is like the this is like walking on the moon." Hendrix, of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in order to validate, just look at the uh, Penny Baker film. Yeah. And look at the faces of the girls that are in the front. Yeah. They can't not believe what they're saying. Yeah. Uh, Certainly Janice. Yeah. Uh, John and I had gone up to San Francisco earlier uh, to see some of the groups. Moby Grape? Uh, we saw Moby Grape. I don't recall. I think Moby Grape was uh, Bill Graham said put him on. And Grateful Dead too. Same with the Grateful yeah, Dead. Yeah, yeah. Um, Janice knocked us out. Yeah. You know, so Janice, Andrew Otis, of course. How was that? That must have been amazing. Otis was amazing. Otis, uh, and he knew because he says in the Penny Big, this is the love crowd, isn't it? Yeah. He knew that he was it was a different crowd for him. Yeah. It was the largest white audience that he he had formed. So at. so the, the love crowd was the hippie idea. So this is like everything had changed yeah. over and it was before it got weird and bad in the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. And so many of them are died shortly after. He didn't get to see it. Yeah. I mean, I think he died in uh 
December of that year, maybe, and this was June. So, and like, and uh, Janice was dead. What seventy one? Seventy one. Yeah, terrible. Hendrix. Yeah, seventy what? Same seventy one. Seventy one. I think they were all twenty seven. I know. Isn't that crazy? That's, that's nuts. Yeah, you know. You don't know. <laughs> Morrison. You know. Yeah. Did you know that guy? Jim? I know him a little bit. He was actually at one of my weddings. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> did he did he behave himself? He behaved himself. Yeah. <laughs> so you just stay in the game. You open the Roxy in '73, but mostly up into that point, you're producing and and uh, and putting out records on your label. Right. And the idea of the Roxy, because it's a, it seems like a, a joint venture. Was what was the fundamental idea? Was it was it to entertain or was it to have an outlet for these bands, you know, here in LA for for exposure? And- I, I, I'll tell you that this story's true. Yeah, Carol King is going to play her first headlining show at the Troubadour, and this is but is this post Tapestry or before post. Before Tapestry. So you haven't recorded that yet? No. Okay. We might have started. Okay. So I'm going to time to sound check. Uh-huh. At she's, the Troubadour, yeah. She's on my label. Yeah. I'm her producer. Yeah. And manager. Right. About four o'clock in the afternoon, I knock on the door. It opens about an inch. The guy says, yeah. And I said, I'm here to, for Carol King's sound check. It's closed. I say, no, I'm her manager. Yeah. I use that, see where that gets me. Right. He says, "Um, I don't know. I don't know your name. I said, my name's on the list. Yeah. He says, I don't have a list. I said, I made a list. He says, maybe it's at the back door. I go around to the back door through the alley. (laughs) Yeah. Same guy opens the door. Same guy? Same guy opens the door. Yeah. I said, what I told you at the front door is what I'm now telling you at the back door. And I repeat myself. I don't remember if I got in or if I left or what happened. That and the fact that when the Axe played the Troubadour, they had assigned six or seven options at the same money that they made on the first first time they played. Right. So Elton John... Finally, pays thirty five, forty thousand dollars to get out of the contract. Um, oh, so it goes on for years. The contract. Yeah. Oh, okay. Seven different times. Right. In perpetuity. Yeah. Seven times you play anywhere, you're going to play the the troubadour, and this is how much you're going to get. Those things factored into it. Also, you're pissed. I was I was really pissed. Yeah. My partner was Elmer Valentine, who had started the Whiskey A Go-Go. Yeah. Uh, who is actually uh, doesn't get the credit he should. He's the guy. He turned rock and roll lights on Sunset Boulevard. He's yeah. The, he's the guy that brought it there. Yeah. Um, a Chicago cop, bad cop, but a Chicago cop. Yeah. And he says, I think, the Largo, which was a burlesque house next door to the Rainbow, which yeah. we had already opened, is available. The guy wants to sell it. 
So I said, let's open something. Let's open something that treats the act right, that gives them the best possible dressing room, sound system, everything that they weren't getting at the Troubadour. Mm -hmm. And he says, let's do it. Yeah, this is Elmer Valentine. Elmer Valentine. He was a cop in Chicago? Bad cop. <laughs> yeah. Threw him out of Chicago. They had to leave Chicago. <laughs> to be a bad cop in Chicago, you got to be pretty bad. Every cop was bad. <laughs> you got to be pretty bad to be thrown out of Chicago. Yeah, right. So he's a tough guy. He's tough. Yeah. yeah. So you. So this is 73, you decide? 72. 72. And when does Tapestry come out? Uh, 71. So that... So that, like, because I, I was kind of looking at the, you know, in terms of producing and putting out records, I mean, that was that was one of the biggest records ever at the time. At the time, and for a long time, maybe still, I don't know, Clive Davis says Whitney Houston was bigger. Uh -huh. But I, I think the Carol King still might be the biggest selling record by a solo female artist. It's like, you know, it's one of those records my parents had, you know what I mean, when I'm it growing up. Also, every time there's a new mode, yeah, um, they somebody buys tapestry to put it in there. You know, we started on vinyl, CD, uh, whatever it goes, digital, whatever it goes to, uh -huh. they buy it. And, you, and your piece of that record was as a producer and as the original label, and do you have a p part of the publishing as well? No, Carol has all the publishing. But so that, like, on some level, you know, made your life that record in terms of money. Made my kid's life. That's <laughs> <laughs> what it did. <laughs> all yeah. seven of them? Put them all through school. Isn't that something yeah. about that business? So after that hits like that, you know, you've got a lot more freedom in, in terms of like— I always felt like I had freedom. I can't remember back. The only time I remember, once I had a deal at Columbia CBS or whatever it was, yeah. records, that I uh, left in the middle because I just couldn't take it. You yeah, know? yeah. Well, working uh, for somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Too many rules, too many regulations. But know? what's interesting is like, you know, looking at some of the information I have, it seems like, you know, you tried, you did some film producing. And directing. Yeah? I directed Up in Smoke. Uh, what did that, you directed Up in Smoke? Yeah. That's a good movie. I am produced. But I directed up on but, but But did you find that you liked it or you had you know, one was enough or it wasn't your bag or what? It depends on where I was in my life. I directed one other film after that uh, called The Fabulous Stains, mm -hmm. which is sort of a cult film. Mm -hmm. uh, didn't do really well in theatrically. Um, I just had a instinct feel for it and, and up in smoke well I, the, they were your guys right i mean cause i knew like, the guys we had already I, done six albums but that, that's the other thing is like you do carol king and then all of a sudden like it seems like the other biggest earners at the time were those cheech and chong records yeah and, i mean uh, uh, um old records that was old records beautiful boutique yeah, yeah and that was your label yeah it was now Cheech and Chong see like a lot of people don't I don't think realize this and, and I guess you know I talked to two, the both of them yeah a few years ago huh. and having grown up on that together yes huh. it was like it was a rare thing but it was right when they started to kind of be able to be together again right yeah. 
But the funny thing was, it was in my old house, and I had the two of them in here, and I got my headphones on. And because I grew up with their records, just hearing them talk. Oh, it's crazy. I, mean, yeah. I, could, I couldn't fucking believe it. Yeah. It was right there in front of me, and they're just talking regular. Yeah. And it's like it's fucking Cheech and Chong. Yeah. But but I think they gave you credit for, and, and I think that people don't realize it, that that, that turned comedy records into something huge. I mean, they, you, it was it was because of you and utilizing the FM radio stations, right, and getting the airplane on FM radio well, stations. Well, there it, were a couple of things. Yeah. One is that I made, my idea was to make ear movies. So I added effects to the comedy, doors slamming, cars pulling away. Sure, yeah, sure, all sure, those sure. So... It, it was an ear movie. You could listen to the comedy. An ear movie. Ear you, movie. You okay. could visualize it all. Oh, yeah. So, it was all yeah. there, like, you know, Sergeant Sedanko, right? You know, class. Yeah, 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 class, yeah. Right, right. And then the driving. Sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, Dave's not here, man. Yeah, all that stuff. Like, uh, there was stuff in cars. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you could hear the car. Yeah. So that when Cheech was singing along, yeah. all those songs he made up. <laughs> It made sense. You right, just right, driving, right. a guy driving And also along. made them more playable because they had texture to them. So you could do a Cheech and Chong uh, cut in between songs with a nice evolution. It didn't It didn't necessarily change the entire tone like you're listening to stand-up. As a DJ, right. Right? Yeah. You could just sort of ease into it and it would make Correct. sense immediately. Yeah. And they'd be, it was huge. Those were like, those records they, sold. They were radio. Well, we decided uh, not to carry a banner uh, for weed, we take it somewhere. And I told the promotion men at AM, if they say, well, we don't know if we can play, thank you very much. Right, right. Walk away. If the guy shows enthusiasm, that's the guy you want. Right. Uh, the other ones, let it go. Right. Oh, in terms of because of the their discomfort around I, drugs? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. So the way I publicize it, was on buses and bus benches. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I advertised it. With the first record, you did that? Like, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, one of the record, Big Bamboo, was like a rolling paper cover. I mean, you said, that was yep. the, it, to find that record with the giant piece of rolling paper That's still right. in there. <laughs> yeah, I think I found one. I mean, you can get them. I think Los Bambinos was my first Cheech and Chong record. Yeah. And, like, Cheech is a great guy. Oh, Cheech is, not only that, he's real smart. Yeah. Well, his story, you know, being a potter and then dodging the draft and then coming back, it's crazy. Going to Canada. Yeah, yeah. and Tommy Chong's story with the family who owned the strip club and all that shit. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, they're both a movie. Yeah. I Individually. Mean, you know, now, now they seem to be promoting their weed together all the time. Like, yeah. they seem to be doing a thing together. Well, she just sort of backed off performance. Yeah. Tommy continues with his wife, Shelby. Yeah. Uh, Cheech is very much into his uh, Latin art museum. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I had a, a tremendous time with both of them. But but those records, I mean, that must have been a blast. So you did how many? You know, you did all the Cheech and Chong records. I did. I didn't do Cheech's solo record. Okay, Born in East LA. Oh yeah, right, right. I didn't do that. Record. So what the last one you did was like the wedding album or something. I did that. Yeah. I, did, I, I think I did all their albums. But between but between Cheech and Chong and Carole King, those were the big ones, right? I had success with um, a group called Tom Scott and the L.A. Express. Okay. Uh, on a Ode. Um, Spirit. Oh, Spirit. was uh, That's right. Uh, they were your guy. Uh, Jay Ferguson uh, in that yeah, gang. Great guy. 
great musician, um, around the same time. Uh huh. Okay, but so, but this is the time also that you you become sort of hands on at the Roxy, right around the same time, right? Sort of hands on. We had bookers. I now, didn't do the booking. But who were the, who were the, was Geffen a partner as well? It was you and no, Geffen? No, he was sort of a consultant. Elliot Roberts. Elliot put up money and was a consultant. I met Elliot before he passed. I met him with what? Ter- terrific fellow. It was so funny because I interviewed Neil at my old house. Mm. And he brings this, like, you know, 70-something-year-old posse with him. You know, yeah. just a bunch of gray hair coming up the yeah. driveway. And that was a, that was an interesting afternoon for me. I, I was lucky because Neil, in the moment, seemed to take a liking to me and was, was uh, amenable to talk. It took a minute, but, but it was pretty good. He's got good stuff to say when he talks. Yeah, yeah, uh, but you gotta, you got to earn it. <laughs> you have to earn it. <laughs> he's not, not going to volunteer it. No. Yeah, it was kind of a great experience to, to talk to that guy. He just had two great shows at the Roxy. That's what I heard. I heard it must have been amazing. Amazing. Yeah? Yeah. I, I've talked to Cros- I talked to Crosby, too. You know, he was sort of, you know, he was something. It's very. <laughs> well, it was the times, you know, we had a lot of crazy people. But, but the way he talks about Neil, like, it, it was really kind of stunning, you know, that the first time he met Neil, you know, was up in Laurel Canyon and Neil whipped out a guitar and Crosby was sort of like, oh, my God. Yeah. This is the guy. Yeah. He like, they all knew he was the guy. Yeah, they did. Yeah. It's a special guy, huh? All those folk. Rock people. Well, you know, you listen to that Neil stuff, and it doesn't age a day. You know, most of the Neil stuff, no matter when it was recorded, because the production was so, uh, you know, not fucked with. Like those early Neil records, they they're timeless, and it's kind of amazing. That's the way it was at the. Um, somebody said in a review I read, yeah. he hasn't played with Crazy the guys from Crazy Horse, yeah. for years. And they play like they just met. Yeah. So. Well, I think he likes to keep it loose. He, he has this amp that he doesn't even know if it's going to work after time. I think he's got a guy that just manages <laughs> his amplifier. <laughs> it's just the yeah. way he is. You he's, know, is, is it? he's kind of got this weird magic to him. He's, he's magical. Yeah. So. I mean, there aren't many guys like that, right? No. I, I had the great fortune of working with three of the greatest songwriters of not only a certain period, but maybe of all time. Yeah. And they were all magical in the in a way. Yeah. Sam Cooke. Yeah. John Phillips. Yeah. Mamas and Papas and Carol King. And along comes Neil. Yeah. Know, so that's crazy, right? Crazy. Oh you pr- you produced that uh, John Phillips solo album which people love. That's a that's a Wolf kind of King. A- it's a little dark and a little interesting, huh? He was dark at that time. You know, he had lost Michelle and he was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now when the Roxy gets going, does it take up... Like, you say you weren't hands-on, you had bookers and stuff, but it feels like, you know, now it was the 50th anniversary. But when you look back on that, I mean, were you at all the shows? I mean, you're in town? Did you well, go? Well, it was my... I was single. Yeah. It was my life. I was hanging out on Sunset Boulevard, you mm. know, so to have a place that... You're uh, single, rich, and a club a club owner. What else could you ask for? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, all I could ask for was kids, and they started coming at that point. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, I had it all, you know. And and those nights there, I mean, like you know, a lot of people talk about when the the first time Bob Marley came to the states. Yeah. 
And like, I just started thinking about that today, you know, cause you know, my generation, I think people, you know, the music, you take it for granted, uh, in a lot of ways, you know, the, the reggae or whatever. But uh, I just started to think this morning about what it must've been like to see that group of people, you know, live for the first time. It was almost like it never been seen before. Any, any one of them yeah. that hit the stage. We were a 500 seat. Well, we, at one point, the clash at midnight. We put thirteen hundred people into the Roxy. No kidding. You In the seven was it like seventy seven or something? Seventy six. Seventy seven, yeah, I think. Yeah. You came in, you took a spot. Yeah. That's where you stayed. You the held on to it. Show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it couldn't move. But it's true. And the English English acts coming over, um Genesis. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. All Early the, on, huh? All those acts that you just heard about and they were sort of mysterious. Yeah. But you got to see them. Yeah. Right. But, like, I can't imagine, like, when Reggae was just starting to sort of blow up and he was the guy that, you know, I think Nicholson even talks about the first time he saw Bob Marley. It was, like, the greatest concert. Yeah, it was that night. It was at the Roxy. Yeah. Everybody came and they were just like, what the fuck? Yeah. What is this? And... You know, where's it going? Yeah, and you really. you did a lot of live records there as well, right? Yeah, in fact, we're putting out um, for Music Cares mm -hmm. uh, about seven or eight, maybe maybe ten uh, live uh, tracks from the Roxy. I think I saw Dweezil do his father's whole set at the Roxy not too long ago, a few years ago. Interesting. Stephen Marley on Sunday. Uh, yeah, did, did his father's. But you had so many people come through there, and I, you know, I, th I don't think people realize, or maybe I didn't realize that a lot of times when you say Genesis, they they weren't popular here yet, right? No, a lot of the acts that we had uh, were introduced to the American, uh, not only public but DJs, uh, certainly writers. Yeah, you know, you had the very hip writers that had picked up on them already. Yep, but. The general writers. Right. And the uh, general sort of, you know, the L.A. Times. Yeah. Uh, so they would come and they that, that would start to get them some traction. Yeah. That's why it was important. Well, it, it was the only place to play, I think. And, and oh, really? So so the, the Troubadour was not? Well, the Troubadour was folk rock. More right. Arts. Still? They, well, no, Elton John broke out of there. Right, and so. and did, uh, but in the Eagles too, right? Eagles like playing the Troubadour. And did they play, they play, they must have played the Roxy once, no, no? never played the Roxy. No kidding. But like, if I look at the, like, see, I, like, if I look at um, just the acts that came through there, it's such a vast, it's so, like, it's, it's, it's the whole spectrum of music. I mean, you've got the Temptations there. You, I mean, you had... Uh, what was it, Jerry Lee Lewis at, at some point, too? Yeah, we did. To, when he was, and that must have been when? In the it 70s, in the, so he was... It was late. I yeah, but he still was kind of crazy, right? He was yeah, always he, crazy, but he, he probably still put on a I good mean, show. I mean, he was Jerry Lee Lewis. So. Uh, yeah, the New York Dolls, 74. Yeah, Joe Cocker. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. And Zappa, of course. Did you Were you friends with Frank? Or? Not real friends with yeah, yeah. Frank, but... Uh, well, he's not. He wasn't a. He wasn't a party guy. No, so. certainly knew him and respected him. Yeah, Billy Joel, Smokey Robinson, Springsteen recorded there. Yeah, that seventy-five. Springsteen, that's crazy. Yeah, 
Amazing, huh? How long did he? How long was the set? Two hours? You know, did he? No, he didn't do it. He, he, he had, hadn't gotten into that. Time. Most of the sets were between forty-five and an hour fifteen. Sure, you know? sure. And uh, Patty Smith did her first LA thing there yeah. too, right? Right. And Lou Reed played there in '76 too. Lou Reed did play there, yeah. Oh, that must have been. I, I wonder what era that was. Was I he? I don't remember that. Show. So, but and you also had like a, a party room there, right? Uh, well, we had upstairs on the rocks. Yeah, and that was like a. But that was just for private private club. Yeah, and that must have been nuts for that, a decade. That was nuts. Yeah, that was crazy. <laughs> yeah, that just added to the craziness. Yeah, you know? and he went through it, man. You you made it uh, amazing. Yeah, it is right. Yeah, I wasn't much of a, an addictor. Right. Uh, I could take it and leave it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I was never crazy with drugs. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I, I used them and right. I, I take them or leave them. Didn't use them. Yeah. Um, oh, the Sex Pistols were there too. What was that? Did you? How was that? I love the Sex Pistols. Yeah. You yeah. still friends yeah. with you know Steve? Uh, I did a couple shows with them. Yeah, yeah, and uh, in in the second film I did uh, that I directed, Steve and Cookie, the drummer, are, yeah. are in the film, as well as Fee Waybill oh, from the Tubes and uh, Paul Cinema from the Clash. Oh, those were great acts. I just went, you know, I just went and watched the. Uh, the reissue of the Talking Heads movie, Stop Making oh, Sense. Yeah. Spectacular. And they were there. Diva was there. Diva was was from here, weren't they? Diva? No, they're from Ohio, but they're around. Mother's Boss here. The Cars were there. BB King. Herbie Hancock. Wow. Cars, Boston. Yeah, Boston. And Prince played there in 79. That must have been amazing. Prince was crazy uh, in a sense. He didn't want to step on Sunset Boulevard. Huh. His bodyguard carried him from the club to the car. What was the reasoning? Never found out, but he didn't want to go on Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> <laughs> and like 1980, I'm looking at Muddy Waters, The Clash, but was that... was uh, Muddy I'm looking at my kids. Yeah. End of the 80s. Oh, okay. Yeah, but Muddy, was that where the Stones did that video? Did they do that? I don't know if that was it. No. no. But Muddy was, uh, that was sort of his resurgence. I, I think they did that in Chicago. Oh, did they? I think so. But Muddy was like kind of like uh, kind of popping again. That was when Johnny Winters was doing those records with him, yeah, I think. Yeah, exactly, right? right. So he kind of had this kind of resurgence. Yeah. So like- well, We have those kind of artists because- uh, you got to a certain point in your career where uh, it felt right to go to a place that would give you that kind of shot. Give uh, you a little credibility with the young people? Validate. Yeah. You know. Like, also, like, I mean, I think I saw, did, Kennison did, Sam Kennison, I believe, did yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He did that special at the Roxy. Yes, he did. And he did it there because, I think, because Robin... Film there and Richard Pryor film there. So Pryor, Richard Pryor did a special there. Robin Williams did a special. That's a there. famous one, that Robin Williams. Yeah, and I think Sam's first that that first HBO special was at the Roxy, and that Kennison. was crazy. Yeah. yeah, but who else? You you say Chris Rock too? Chris Rock did it. 
Um, Who was the first one? I think everybody, like usually comics, they want to perform I it. I think Pryor. That must have been it. Yeah, I think Richard Pryor. Yeah. Were you friends with him? Uh, no. Yeah. It, because like usually comics, if it becomes established as a venue. Well, that, uh, there was one right down the street that was the comedy store. Sure. but And for a lot of long time, if an act performed at the Roxy. Yeah. She wouldn't let them come back to the comedy store. <laughs> but because these acts were so, so big, big, yeah, she let them come back. So they started at the comedy store, but like at that time, they weren't shooting specials at the comedy store. No. Did you know? Ciro's, right? Well, Ciro's, it, was, it wasn't Ciro's. By 73, it was a store, and Ciro's had been black for a while. And I guess there was a guy, didn't a guy own that one part of the room that was sort of a music venue for a while that he took over as rock and roll. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then like, I think Sammy Shore got the, the <laughs> half of the club and started the comedy store. And then she took it over in 73 when they divorced. Right. You didn't I, have business with her. I did. I, I had no, I knew Paulie fairly well. Sure. Yeah. Some, yeah. Yeah. But no, I never had any. Business and it was just down the street and it was yeah. like its own thing. It wasn't the strip. Though. That's the right. The strip. Uh, which started for us at the whiskey, yeah, and include the Viper Room, right? Uh, everything from the Tower Records, right, over up west. to Doheny, right. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Well, that well, that's good to know. Did you go all? Did you go to the comedy shows? Did you see Richard and everybody? I saw Richard Pryor, yeah, and I saw part of the Robin Williams yeah. show. Yeah, I drop in on those now. The one interesting key to the Roxy is it seems like right after you opened it, you just, you know, you just put the Rocky Horror Picture Show in there for a year. 75. Yeah. I mean, you must have been, I, I mean, this is before it was a movie, it was a stage show, but you must have been so taken with that. I mean, was that a, were you just in love with the show or was that a financial decision? What was the? I, I haven't made, other than outside of, of uh, the music business. Yeah. Uh that's where my financial decisions were made. I didn't make too many within the music business or the entertainment business. Oh, interesting. I uh, had a, my first boy. Yeah. His name is Nikolai, uh, with Britt Eklund, yeah. who is a Swedish-English yeah. actress. And she lived in London uh -huh. with my son, mm -hmm. who lived there for the first couple of years of his life. And I used to go in every uh, six weeks or so to visit him. Yeah. And she called in the middle of one of those three weeks in. She says, there's a show here, the Rocky Horror Show. Yeah. Uh, you ought to come and see it. And so I flew in to see it. I was in jet lag. The music, Tim Curry, all of that just got me. Yeah. Uh, that night I went to a party in London. Yeah. I met Michael White, the original producer. Yeah. Made a deal and brought it to the Roxy. And it stayed for a year? Nine months. And it was just selling out, went crazy. Every night. And and then the movie happened after? No, then we went to Broadway and failed. Okay. Uh, and so you were the American producer? I was the American producer. Okay. Yeah. And did you have anything to do with the film? I produced it. You did? Yeah. That that thing had a life forever. Still, <laughs> I mean, this Halloween, September, October, November. Yeah, Will's eight hundred, nine hundred theaters. 
on Halloween. It's a, just generation after generation learns the ritual of being part of the movie. Right. Because they have that 17 uh, and older, uh, it's a rite of passage. Yeah. You know? And it's still, it's, still go, it's still going. Still going. That's crazy, man. Yeah. Hey, like, so that was a good decision on your part, huh? Not bad. And then, like some of these other bands too, like Guns N' Roses and uh, and Jane's Addiction, they started at the Roxy too a bit, right? Yes, they did. Great band. Guns N' Roses might have played the Whiskey before, yeah. but you guys all knew each other on the Strip, right? It's a community, the club owners, right? Well, I owned the Whiskey for a while with <laughs> Elmer and the uh, Maglieri family, which was Mario Maglieri. He was, he was from Chicago. He wasn't a cop. He was a bag man. He was a bag man for the judge. Uh-huh. Put the money in the bag. I'll give it to the judge. When you met him, he was that? Or was it after he, that? He came to Chicago. He was the doorman at the Whiskey. Okay. And manager. Uh, end up being a part of the ownership. Of so the was, it, was there mob involvement? No, we had one incident. Uh, I used to go to the whiskey every night while Johnny Rivers was playing there. Yeah. And I get a message from Johnny, can I come back to the dressing room? And I go back to the dressing room, and there's two guys in there besides Johnny. One is in a suit, yeah. lawyer type. Yeah. And the other guy, definitely smushed nose yeah, type yeah. of guy. Yeah. And the hand, lawyer hands me a paper, signed this. Yeah. I take a look at the bottom. I knew quickly it was a piece of Johnny Rivers. Yeah. I said, I'm not signing this. Yeah. The other guy says to me something like, how about I stuff your arms down your neck? and yeah. Every kind of threat. Yeah. Um, I says, well, give me the paper. Let me take it overnight. Yeah. And I went to Elmer. And Elmer flew to Chicago <laughs> oh, shit. and talked to the bar and called those guys off. <laughs> so Elmer still had a little weight. Still had a little weight. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's crazy. And he used to go to all the Lakers games for a while, right? Still do? I still go, but I don't go to as many. Yeah. I used to go to every game. With Jack. Jack and I would be at every game. Yeah. How's he doing? Jack's doing, he's doing whatever he really wants to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wants to be quiet. Yeah. Uh, he wants to eat what he wants. He yeah. wants to live the life he wants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I, I remember some guy, I, there's a, a friend of mine wanted to put him in a movie, and uh, he had a conversation with him. But Jack says, I don't want to do it. He goes, you know what I did today? I sat under a tree and I read a book. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like Jack. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was great talking to you. I appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thanks very much. You asked the right questions. Oh, thank you, man. Okay, there you go. Right? How good was that? Fucking Cheech and Chong. You can go to Roxy.com for all the events they're holding in honor of the 50th anniversary. And please, if you could, hang out a minute. Hey, folks, this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. 
I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. You know all those times you've heard guests sneeze on the show. Well, actually, you don't hear any of that because we cut the sneezes out when we're editing. But take my word for it, people definitely sneeze in here, and when they they do, I've got a box of Kleenex on the table right in front of them so they can use one and get right back to business. And here's what Kleenex means to me, a tissue that will hold up. We've all used those other tissues that you blow holes right through. When I see Kleenex, I know that tissue is up for the job. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. All right, so the latest Archive Deep Dive is now posted for full Marin subscribers. We revisit episode 200. The interesting thing that we talked about a lot at the beginning of the podcast was now I've got all of these new fans who don't know me as a comic. It was a big concern for me at the beginning, and, and it was hard for me. Like, you know, that, you know, I was like, I didn't get into this game to be an interviewer. I know it was a job on television that I tried to get, but ultimately, in, and it's even stronger now, you know, I, I've always been and always wanted to be a comic of some relevance. And we didn't start the podcast to, for you to be an interviewer. We started the podcast for you to do a radio show that highlighted you the way we were doing it on the air at Air America and various other outlets. Yeah, right. And the thought was, this will be an, a, a way to help your stand-up career. Like, it yeah. was a side gig to help out with your profile. It wasn't thought to be an interview show and that you were going to be the interview guy. Right. I guess that's right. I forget that. There you go. To get bonus episodes twice a week and all WTF episodes ad-free, go to the link in the episode description and sign up for the full Marin. Or go to WTFpod.com and sign up for WTF+. Plus. Next week, it's a real New York City week, folks, with documentarian John Wilson on Monday and world music legend Laraji on Thursday. Those are good. Those are both interesting. And now here's some slide guitar for my friend Lorraine.
Funky and LaFonda. Cat Angels everywhere. <laughs> 